You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After Lives is a new podcast about the life and legacy of Laylene Polanco, a transgender Afro-Latina who died tragically on Rikers Island Jail Complex. Justice for Laylene! loved to dance. She loved to sing. She was just happy to be alive. Stepping foot on Rikers Island has been widely acknowledged a potential death sentence. Listen to After Lives, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more. And listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jimi Hendrix was born on the 27th day of November, and he lived a life of character-building faux pas. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 10 would be the number of times his father caught him playing the devil's guitar, left-handed, upside-down guitar, the way that Satan liked it. It wasn't allowed in his father's house. One would be the number of times he was caught masturbating in the army barracks as a private first class, an act that would ultimately lead to his welcome dismissal from the armed forces. Two more would be the number of times he was arrested for riding around in stolen cars as a teenager in Seattle. Another three would be the number of times he tried to infiltrate the backstage dressing room of Hank Ballard in the Midnighters to get some one-on-one guitar lessons, not to mention an intensely strong contact high. And 11 would be the number of years he had left to live after he first saw Little Richard preach some fire and brimstone gospel, all totaling 27. On this, our fourth episode of season one, Getting caught with your pants down, stolen cars, backstage reefer madness, and the God-fearing Georgia Peach. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
Jimi Hendrix was up against the back of the Chevy Corvair when the handcuffs bit into his wrists. Chest pressed flat on the car's turquoise frame, legs straight and spread apart. The wind picked up and howled and then died back down again. Typical Seattle weather for early May. Windy and just about 10 degrees above freezing. The air wet, salty, frigid, and the wind bit into the back of Jimmy's neck just like the cuff metal dug at his hands. Two of his friends were in the same upright position, standing next to him. Maybe friends was a stretch. There were a couple of other aimless punks from the neighborhood. High school dropouts like Jimmy, searching for something to occupy their idle time on a Friday night, again like Jimmy. And the Seattle cops were white, middle-aged, uptight, the polar opposite of the three black kids they had pulled over. And the car was definitely not theirs, and it was definitely hot. Jimmy had been riding shotgun when the familiar blue light snapped on behind them. Jimmy stood there with his arms behind his back, didn't say a word. One of the cops was doing the Miranda thing. You have the right to remain silent. And the other one looked Jimmy up and down, took them all in, squinted his eyes in the dark, the wet, salty wind pelting his eyelids and ringing a bitter tone in his ear. Will the wind ever remember the names it has blown in the past? Don't I know you? The cop asked Jimmy. Didn't I just see you a few nights ago? Jimmy, head down and still silent, slowly turned to look at the cop one hand pointing his flashlight in Jimmy's general direction, the other resting on top of his standard-issue piece in its holster. Fuck, he was made. Out joyriding again, Hendricks. The cop wasn't wrong. Jimmy had been picked up three nights earlier doing the exact same thing, riding around in a hot car. He'd tell the cops the same thing he told him the other night. He didn't know the car was stolen. He was bored, looking for something to do. This is a 1960 Chevy Corvair. Would you refuse a ride in a 1960 Chevy Corvair? If someone you knew pulled up to your house and hollered, yo, let's go for a ride, would you honestly turn your back and sit at home? It's not like there was homework to do. Jimmy had flunked out of Garfield High School back in the fall, and he was starting to get a little too acquainted with the local fuzz. Taking rides in cars that didn't belong to him, didn't belong to his family. The police had been targeting black teenagers in the city due to a rash of home burglaries, profiling stopping black kids as they walked down the street. The mouthy cop couldn't help himself. You're a real dumb shit, huh, boy? You don't learn any lessons, do you? Jimmy didn't say anything. His father always told him a fish wouldn't get into trouble if it kept its mouth shut. The relationship between white cops and black kids in 1961 Seattle wasn't all that different from anywhere else in the country at the time. Tensions were high, ignorance was wide, bullshit ran deep, and there were bad eggs, an investigation of police brutality in the Seattle Department a few years earlier brought some deeply harbored shit to the surface. All Negroes carry knives, went one of the popular tenants of the force. Any Negro driving a Cadillac is either a pimp or a dope peddler, was another of Seattle Police Department's insane truisms. And the cops arresting Jimmy and his fellow joyriders mumbled to each other and laughed, shot their fair share of glances at the kids, made them uncomfortable, sure, as black kids being arrested by white cops, but also as kids being arrested by cops. And the cops bent Jimmy's head down and pushed him into the back of the police cruiser. And the heat was on full blast, and the back seat smelled like sweaty teenage boys. And the cops kept up with their inside jokes, and Jimmy let his head fall against the headrest and tuned out. If only he hadn't jumped in that fucking Corvair. He wasn't paying attention when they pulled up to the Rainier Vista 4-H Youth Center. He'd spend a night at this juvenile detention shipbox earlier in the week when he was picked up the first time. His father bailed him out. 
Now he was a repeat offender. The one thing he was sure of as the cops yanked him from the back seat was that he wasn't busting out after just one night. He would sit in this cooler for a while. The receptionist at the front desk wore cat eye glasses beneath her stylish bouffant. She sat hypnotized by a small black and white TV, its bunny ears askew. Alan Shepard was on the news, first American man in space. His spacecraft launched from Cape Canaveral earlier that day. Jimmy stopped, transfixed, watched the TV screen, the otherworldliness of it, the thrill of it, the future of it. He thought of gazing up at the stars and seeing his mother nestled between two bright spots in the dark, about Buster Crabbe who played Flash Gordon in those old film serials he loved, about the flying saucer doodles he drew when he was little. He was brought back to reality when the officer removed his handcuffs, started barking, take off your damn shoes and your belt, empty your fucking pockets. Jimmy sat in that cooler for a week, sat searching through his own mind, through the weeks and years and events that had led him here. And the first day he thought about his parents. Lucille was only 17 when she became his mother. She named him Johnny Allen. She was unprepared, couldn't even change a diaper, bounced around from house to house and family to family, relied on the kindness of strangers. Al, his dad, was stationed with the army in Alabama when Jimmy was born. Denied paternity leave, they jailed him instead. Flight risk, they transferred him to the South Pacific. When Al finally met his son at age three, he changed Jimmy's name from Johnny Allen to James Marshall. James was Al's legal first name and Marshall was the middle name of his dead brother. The second day, he thought about his parents fighting. Al coming home drunk and walking in the wrong house in the street, stumbling into the wrong living room, sitting down on the wrong couch, yelling at the wrong family. When he did find his way home, he'd get violent, denied paternity to half his offspring. His parents split when he was nine. The fourth day, he thought about his brothers and sisters, goddamn Shakespearean tragedy. Kathy, born blind, Pamela, put into foster care, Joe, born with two rows of front teeth, a club foot, a cleft palate. Jimmy himself didn't speak for the longest time, and when he finally did, he stuttered. They were hungry. They were fed by neighbors and friends. Al and Lucille would eventually sign away their parental rights to most of them. The fifth day, he thought about his ancestors. Slaves, slave owners, Native Americans. The shame of America tangled up in the roots of his family tree. The sixth day, he thought about his guitar. Actually, he thought about his guitar every day. He'd been without the silver tone for nearly a week, and it was killing him. It was an instrument of comfort, a sense of self. He needed it back in his hands. On the last day, Jimmy found himself standing in front of the judge, public defender at his side. He was still searching in his own head for answers, for an explanation, for a good reason why he was standing in front of a judge. The public defender was explaining to the judge that his client would like to avoid jail time by enlisting in the U.S. Army. He'd sign up for three years. Would that suit the court? As he left the court and checked out of the youth center, he wasn't thinking about the Army. His thoughts were stuck on his guitar on playing, that sound. He thought about Ernestine Benson, a boarder who had stayed at Al and Jimmy's place when Jimmy was in the seventh grade. Her 78 record collection was revelatory. Wolf, Muddy, Lightning, Robert Johnson. She bought him an acoustic guitar with one string for five bucks. It was his first. When he got a full set of strings for it, he restrung it lefty style. Jimmy was born left-handed, but Al was always trying to get him to use his right hand. Jimmy would eat cereal with a spoon in his left hand, and Al would take the spoon and put it in his right hand. Al would take the pencil out of Jimmy's left hand and put it in his right hand. 
God forbid that Al caught Jimmy playing the guitar left-handed. Ain't no son of mine gonna play no devil guitar. You play that thing like a normal person, like a Christian, or so help me God, I will break it in half while you watch. Left-handed guitar was surely the sign of the devil. It was unnatural, Al thought. Depraved, ungodly, people would talk. So Jimmy had to learn to play it upside down like a right-hander in case Al walked in his bedroom unannounced. Left-handed guitar was some devil shit. Jimmy sat on his bed alone. The $5 guitar pulled tight against his chest on top of his lap. His door was closed but not latched. A two-inch gap kept it open to the hallway. Better to hear his father approaching the next time and not be taken by surprise. He was holding the guitar right-handed, and where he had strung it lefty, it was upside down. He had to try at least to play it upside down, if for nothing else, to avoid the hellfire that Al was just itching to unleash. It was like someone had swapped wires in his brain, his left hand on the neck and right hand picking at the strings, like some scavenger bird picking at the corpse of a bloated animal on the side of the road. Childlike, remedial, run-of-the-mill dissonance, random pecks, garbage sound. He flipped it back over lefty style and his right hand wrapped itself tight around the neck and wouldn't let go. The maple wood of the guitar neck was flesh now. He felt the blood pump to the palm of his hand and surge into the guitar neck like his heart was right there. The hair on the back of his neck stood up. His left hand brought the guitar pick down to the strings viciously and he lit into that little shitbox. He played the flurry of notes he heard in his head, this melodic improvisation over a 1-4-5 blues tune. The fingernails on his right hand arched like plants, favoring the sun towards the fretboard. The guitar was hot, hellfire for sure. He thought he heard footsteps in the hall and quickly turned the guitar back over right-handed. He sounded like shit again, and there was no connection between his body and the instrument. Clunky pecks, again, garbage sound. He flipped it back lefty style and felt the surge go through his body once more. His right hand got hot. He looked down and couldn't tell where his hand ended and the guitar's neck began. He didn't even think about what he was doing. He didn't have to. His hands, his arms, they were a part of this now. Soon, his whole body would be. In a few years, Jimmy would play it upside down, right side up, on his head, behind his back. He would lord over the devil's instrument. But first things first, before he could devote himself entirely to the guitar, his time belonged to someone else, Uncle Sam. It was army time for joyriding Jimi Hendrix, and no amount of devil shit was gonna stop that from happening. He would just have to figure out a way to make the best of it, endure it, live through it, and then get out fast, get out early. He'd have to get creative, do something that would shock the army. Not enough for a dishonorable discharge, but just enough so that he'd pack his bags and hit the road. Jimi Hendrix was masturbating, furiously, and he got caught. Not by his mom, not by his dad, not in his bedroom. Jimmy was having a wank in the barracks at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, out in the open. A superior officer found him there, arm moving at a feverish pace. His breathing labored and rough. He was peaking, plateauing. He was 19, private first class in the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles. Goddamn right that eagle was screaming. It was spring, 1962. Private Hendricks! Jimmy's head shot up from where he was seated on his bunk, panicked, humiliated, mortified. No 
pun intended, caught red-handed with his pants down, with his dick in his hand. Aren't you supposed to be on duty, son? It was all an act. The shock, the disbelief, the shame, the humiliation. This whole thing was jive. Private Hendrix, private first class, jumper, paratrooper, death defier, Jimi Hendrix sitting prone in an army barracks in Kentucky, wearing standard issue olive drab fatigues. Jimi Hendrix, in the army now, it was all bullshit. This wasn't Jimi Hendrix, anyone could see that. Jimi wanted to get caught in the act. Do something stupid, Jimi. Wait until they were making their rounds and just sit out in the open, spanking it. It would make his story airtight, legit. His plan to get the fuck out of the army less than a year after he went and got himself enlisted was going to work. He met with the base psychiatrist a few times in the spring to put his plan into action, change up the plot. He no longer wanted to be Jimi Hendrix, the army man, the 101-er. He needed something fantastical in order to wriggle out of his three-year commitment, an offer they couldn't refuse. Three years. Three years of tumbling from great heights and praying to God that the chute would open when it was supposed to. Fuck no. Never mind what was going on in Cuba, Laos, and Vietnam. He had made it through the exhaustion of basic training at Fort Ord in California the previous year, only to realize at Fort Campbell, as the greenest member of the 101st Airborne, that this certainly wasn't his path. Not who he was supposed to be. He asked to speak with the base psychiatrist. It was urgent. Uh, Doc, it's like this. I think I'm a homosexual. A homo what? Jimmy spun the tail to an army shrink in a proto-don't-ask-don't-tell world. He was thinking about the other guys in the barracks, in the showers. He was getting turned on all the time. He was hard all the time. He couldn't take it anymore, Doc. And the psychiatrist wasn't sure what to do with this. Is this love or is this confusion? He told Jimmy to calm down, to get over it. That's what you did in the army. Got over it. But Jimmy kept going back, kept requesting appointments with the base head shrinker, kept adding to the story. Uh, Doc, it's like this. I can't stop touching myself. Do you know what I mean, Doc? You even look at these guys in here and the next thing you know, your hands are down your pants. I can't stop it, Doc. I don't want to stop. Jimmy sat on a chair in the base psychiatrist's office, his eyes straight to the floor. He pulled on his standard-issue tie, turned his standard-issue cadet cap over and over in his hands. Once he was caught in the act, things moved quickly. He got the once-over by a captain at the base who gave Jimmy the first full exam he'd had since joining the year before. Captain Halbert. His notes were succinct, bigoted, narrow-minded. Just as Jimmy had hoped. Jimmy had quote-unquote personal problems. Perhaps the United States military and Jimi Hendrix should go their separate ways. Jimi Hendrix just wasn't army material. Jimmy chose the 101st Airborne not just because it was sexy and cutting edge. The airborne paratroopers who hit the beach on D-Day were the stuff of legends. But serving for the 101st Airborne also meant an extra 50 bucks in your pocket each month. Jimmy's father, Al Hendricks, shipped his guitar to him from back home in Seattle. It allowed him to hang on to a piece of himself. A piece of himself that he could recognize. It was like a missing appendage. The guitar was a Dan Electro, Silvertone, a budget model with a decent tone, budget enough that a teenager like Jimmy could afford it, but decent enough that it would be favored, albeit briefly, by Eric Clapton during his Blind Faith stint and by Sid Barrett in Pink Floyd's Salad Years. Jimmy bought it for 50 bucks at Sears Roebuck. It was white, but he painted it red. He wrote Betty Jean in big letters on its front after his high school girlfriend. 
and Jimmy didn't keep his guitar in a case. At every opportunity, he would play. He walked around the bass with it strung to his back like Sterling Hayden and Johnny Guitar. He talked to it, slept with it. During downtime, Jimmy would plug his Dan Electro into amplifiers at the club on bass. He'd jam on the blues tunes from back home, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, and the guitar would echo through the empty service club hall. And Jimmy would close his eyes and imagine the hall full of people. And this could be him. This could be Jimi Hendrix. One afternoon, another serviceman walked into the club, seeking shelter from the rain outside. Jimmy was oblivious, but this dude stopped to listen. It was unlike anything he'd ever heard before. He'd later describe what he heard as Beethoven meets John Lee Hooker. It was Billy Cox, bass player from Pittsburgh, fellow Screaming Eagle. He'd go on to play in one of Jimmy's first real bands and again in his last real band. Throughout, he'd be a constant in Jimmy's life, a friend, an ally, a fellow gypsy, fellow army trooper, a true brother in arms. Right now, though, Billy Cox was standing silent, listening to the sounds from Jimmy's Dan Electro bounce around the service club number one, thinking, who the fuck is this dude? Jimmy and Billy became fast friends. Their band, The Casuals, with a K, played bass clubs. Eventually, they played joints outside of Fort Campbell, morphing to the King Casuals with two Ks. And soon, Jimmy was imagining a life outside the army, a life without the army, a life free from the stress of the jumps and the repetition of the Fort Campbell lifestyle. Play late, sleep in, wake up, play guitar, jam a little, hit the next gig, repeat. But to get to that place where he could stroll around like Sterling Hayden all day long, he would have to transcend this reality. He would have to get as far away from the army as possible. Before his skin turned the color of camouflage, before he bled red, white, and blue, he had to lay some trip that would be impossible to come back from. He'd say he was gay. He had no problem with that, personally. But it drove the military types up the fucking wall. Being gay in the early 1960s was a social prison for some, but for Jimi Hendrix, it was his ticket to freedom. Gotta get away, stone free, to do what I please, stone free, to ride the breeze. Jimmy had recently hurt his ankle jumping from an airplane, and that would be the perfect reason to give when friends and family asked what had happened to him. Why, less than a year after enlisting, he was out on the street, out on his own, no direction home. His discharge papers in May 1962 told a different story, of course. Behavior problems, requires excessive supervision while on duty, apprehended masturbating in platoon area. The ruse worked. He was stone free. And now what? He didn't have to play this role any longer. But now who would he be? It would have to be different, new. He sure as hell wasn't going to go back to that spot he was in before winding up in the army. Dead broke, busted and in jail. He'd let his guitar lead him there, lead him far away from the army, far away from home, far from a comfort zone, surrounded by smoke, noise, temptation, things he hadn't seen and things he would start to see a lot more of. Some of the best teachers laid in wait down a darkened hallway, behind a stage stained with sweat and spit and dirt, in a dressing room stained with God knows what else. Deep into these dens of experience, he'd go to find out just how much more devilish he could become. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Jimi Hendrix was out of the army and searching for Billy Davis. The Billy Davis, Hank Ballard's guitar player. The cat behind the monster riff on Sexy Ways and the whiplash solo on Look at Little Sister. The guy who rubbed elbows with John Lee Hooker, Jackie Wilson, and Smokey Robinson. They called him The Face. Chicks dug him, dudes wanted his duds. He was only a few years older than Jimmy, but in guitar years and showbiz years, the dude was a legend. He was the wise old man at the top of the mountain that Jimmy had only begun to climb. Hank Ballard and the Midnighters had just finished their first set of the night in Jimmy's hometown at the Eagles Auditorium. 16-year-old Jimmy brought his guitar to the show. 
brought his own guitar to someone else's show and wasn't leaving until he got some pointers from his hero, Billy Davis. It was the shitty acoustic guitar given to him by Ernestine that he had restrung Lefty. He sat there in a chair, guitar on his lap, and watched the Midnighters run through their well-oiled show, dressed to the nines, singing those lyrics that got their songs pulled from the air by stations all over the country. Annie, please don't cheat. Give me all my meat. And Billy Davis nearly showing up Hank Ballard. He was flashy as hellfire, dancing, spinning, twirling, playing his guitar behind his head, holding his guitar near his amp to coax out some discordant feedback. Billy had it all, the chops, the looks, the moves. Everyone else in the room was watching Hank Ballard, but Jimmy kept his eye on the guitar player, absorbed every move. Intermission hit and Jimmy jumped up, clawed his way through the crowd towards the stage to track down Billy. He had to find Billy. The band was nowhere to be found probably in their dressing room already. Jimmy didn't know how he'd infiltrate, but he'd get back there. Hold up, Ballard's trumpet player was talking up some little Miss Strange in a well-worn poodle skirt, stage right. Jimmy made a beeline, the acoustic guitar in his hand, banging into people mingling throughout the crowd. Hey man, Jimmy hollered at the horn man. Where's Billy Davis at? Can I talk to Billy? Horn man held up his finger to the girl to pause their conversation and gave Jimmy a look that was halfway between disgust and shock. Say what? Billy, Billy Davis, I want to ask him some questions about playing guitar, see? And Jimmy lifted his guitar up to offer the horn man a better view, flashed a toothy smile. And the horn man's face changed from a scowl to a smirk, and suddenly he was laughing. Shit, you gotta be kidding me with this horse shit, kid. Go back to your seat. Enjoy the show. Jimmy stood his ground. He came all the way over here. He brought his damn guitar. He was gonna get some tips from Billy Davis, goddammit. He interrupted Hornman again. This was important, urgent. He was a huge fan. He just had to meet him. Hornman looked at Jimmy's face, that face that summoned strangers, that face that had charisma to spare. All right, fuck it. Follow me. I ain't promising you nothing, though. Hornman motioned to Jimmy to follow him behind the stage down a darkened hallway to the band's dressing room. The dressing room door opened, and peeking over Hornman's shoulder, Jimmy spied the action. Dressing room confidential. The Midnighters laughing, yelling at each other, drinking hooch from little cups, smoking stubby cigarettes, thick wafts of reefers, suspenders, shined up shoes, pomade, infectious laughter of women, a tube radio pumping out the coasters, Charlie Brown. Fee fee five five fo fo fum. I smell smoke in the auditorium. Front and center, Billy Davis chilling on a love seat with a girl dangling from each knee. The girls were laughing, laughing way too hard, their heads thrown back in attention-getting ecstasy. Billy's eyes at half-mask, grinning from ear to ear. Who walks in the classroom, cool and slow? Who calls the English teacher, Daddy-o? Yo, Billy, Hornman hollered into the dip. There's this kid who wants to talk to you. He brought a guitar. Nah, I'm busy, man. Billy turned his attention back to the girls, took a long drag from a thin cigarette, mumbled something to one of them, something like, tell me that again, baby. But one of the band members in the room shut the dressing room door shut. Hornman shrugged his shoulders, and that was that. Them's the brakes, kid. Nah, them's ain't the brakes. Jimmy insisted, dogged Hornman, hounded him, threatened to annoy the shit out of him all night long if he didn't get him five minutes with his idol. Hornman made another attempt, and Billy shot back the same response. I said I was busy. Billy, this kid is annoying the shit out of me. He won't leave me alone, and he brought his goddamn guitar. And the third time turned out to be the charm. Billy conceded, ushered the girls off his lap, and met Jimmy out in the hallway. 
And Jimmy's smile took over his entire face. The face made fast friends. Billy felt his annoyance deflate. Obviously, this was a fan and a dedicated one at that. Billy's ego was in control now. So Jimmy and Billy shook hands. And then the deluge of questions hit. How do you make it sound like that? When do you know how to bend a note? How do you know you're bending the right note? How do you make that scuffing sound and finger pop in time? How many hours a day do you play? Billy laughed, answered some of the questions, told him some of the other answers would have to wait until Jimmy had some more experience under his belt. He examined the shitty acoustic guitar, which Jimmy knew was shitty. He knew he could do better. He was just so eager to learn. And maybe Billy could just stop by his house this week. They could sit down and he could show him a thing or two. Weren't the Midnighters here in town for a whole week playing shows? Billy saw the sincerity in Jimmy's eyes, the realness. The kid didn't care about the dressing room confidential going on behind the door. Didn't care about the girls, about the smokes, about the tube radio-powered hijinks. He wanted to learn everything there was to learn about the guitar, as shitty as his was. He wanted to take the mojo from Ernestine's 78s and inject it straight into the fretboard. And he wanted Billy Davis to show him how. Sure, kid. What's your address? What are you doing tomorrow afternoon? Jimi Hendrix's crash course tutoring by the Billy Davis is fantastical, mythical even, but it totally happened. Billy went to Al and Jimmy's house a few times during the week that the band was in Seattle, distilled a lifetime of playing and noodling and learning into a couple of afternoon sessions. A few years later, Billy laid down the guitar on Jackie Wilson's timeless classic, Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher. And in 2012, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Midnighters. But his tutelage of a young Jimi Hendrix likely was enough of a contribution. Jimi's first attempt to insert himself into the scene, to be in the right place at the right time, to learn what he wanted from who he wanted was a success. And it gave him confidence, or at least the lack of fear, to go out and do it again. It came in handy as he joined some of his first bands. First the Velvetones, and then the Rockin' Kings. He'd hang around the Spanish castle, a legendary dance hall, an hour outside of Seattle, and offer to fill in for other bands if they needed a player. The more he looked, the more he saw. The more he searched, the more he found. Sometimes, he wouldn't even be looking. Sometimes, these things just pulled up in a car, opened the door, and stepped out in front of him. Jimmy's younger brother, Leon, burst through the front door and recounted the story breathlessly. It was a long black limousine. It was parked right outside the Carlton Avenue grocery, just as he was walking by, and little Richard climbed out of it. Was Leon there? Of course Leon was there. He stopped dead in his tracks, mouth agape. Little Richard stepped out of that limo, white tie on white shirt, dark mohair suit, big-ass hair, pencil mustache, right here in Seattle. He took one look at Leon and started to testify. Praise Jesus. This wasn't the tutti-frutti little Richard or leather G-string and feather headdress little Richard. This was the God-fearing, life-changing, gospel-spreading little Richard. Little Richard was known as one of the architects of rock and roll. That year, 1957, after years of wearing makeup and singing tirelessly of sex-charged liberation, he was looking for and finding signs from God. He infamously mistook the launch of the Soviet Union Sputnik 1 as a red fireball sent from the heavens. 
He was on tour in Australia and saw Armageddon in the sky. Threw his big gaudy rings in a river. Boom, no more rock and roll. It was all God's work from then on out. Old man trouble, please wash away all my fears. Leon was out running a few errands for the house when Little Richard's limo entered his life. Little Richard immediately invited Leon to come to the Baptist church that night where he'd be preaching. Leon had never met a celebrity before, and Jimmy would never believe it. The brothers didn't have church clothes per se, but they did their best. Jimmy's shirt was a little dirty, his shoes torn, and the fancy church-going crowd looked at the brothers up and down when they arrived, like they were orphans out of a Dickens novel. Who let these street urchins in here? And they leaned their bikes up against the exterior of the church, they found a few seats up front, as close as they could get to the pulpit. And Jimmy was reminded of the feeling he got when he saw Elvis perform just a few months earlier. The anticipation of seeing this person in the flesh, this famous person who was on your radio all the time. Unlike the Elvis show, though, Jimmy was going to be only a few arms length away from the start tonight. Little Richard hit the stage, still with the big-ass hair and the pencil mustache minus the makeup oversized purple robe trailing behind him as he prowled in front of the packed house. His eyes blew up wide, just like when he sang rock and roll. He shook his head in rapturous twitches, just like he would in front of a piano. With men, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible, he exclaimed. The crowd immediately responded with amens and other agreeable grunts. Ecstasy, teary-eyed, he went on. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jimmy closed his eyes listened to Little Richard's words and imagined that he wasn't talking about God in the hereafter. He knew what Little Richard was talking about. He was talking about other truths, about Long Tall Sally and about ripping it up and about how the girl can't help it. And Jimmy imagined that voice booming and wooing into the Baptist ceiling and transposed it onto the words he wanted to hear. And after the sermon, Jimmy and Leon stood in the receiving line to get their blessing from the celebrity pastor to touch the hem of his garment. For Jimmy, it was another one of his creative osmosis moments, to stand next to greatness, observe it, decode it, become it. Little did Jimmy know that only a few years down the road, Little Richard would trade in his preaching robe for his rock and roll shoes once more. Only this time, he'd have a young Jimi Hendrix playing guitar by his side. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is scored and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer, editor, and co-producer. The 27 Club is mixed and engineered by Sean Cahalan and Matt Bowden, both of whom lent their considerable music talent to the scoring of this series as well. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, and Season 2 will feature 12 episodes on Jim Morrison. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to the 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. 
So get out there and please spread the word about the 27 Club. As always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other podcast, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter, at DisgracelandPod. One way or another, I hope to be talking to you soon. Until then. What's up for your ears? Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After Lives is a new podcast about the life and legacy of Laylene Polanco, a transgender Afro-Latina who died tragically on Rikers Island Jail Complex. Justice for Laylene! loved to dance. She loved to sing. She was just happy to be alive. Stepping foot on Rikers Island has been widely acknowledged a potential death sentence. Listen to After Lives, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.